0: Hello and welcome to the EdSurge podcast, where every week we look at the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young. I'm a reporter and an editor here at EdSurge. The news these days is full of stories about chat GPT and concerns that AI can now do the work that instructors typically ask high school and college kids to do. This week, we are talking about the kind of classes that are probably the least likely to be replaced by AI anytime soon. That would be creative writing classes, where students are asked to push the boundaries of language and express what makes us human. This topic is personal for me because back when I was in college, I dreamed of becoming the next great American novelist. So I took several creative writing classes. And I have to say they pushed me and and challenged me in ways that my academic classes never did. There was no right answer to expressing myself in these classes. And yet some students... Were clearly more gifted than others and more willing or able to observe what made themselves and others around them tick and craft something relatable from that musing. As I've mentioned on the podcast before, I went to Princeton University for undergrad and I got to take a creative writing class with Joyce Carol Oates, one of America's greatest living writers. And I'm happy to say she graciously agreed to be our guest for the Ed Surge podcast this week. Joyce Carol Oates has published more than 100 books and won the National Book Award, the National Humanities Medal, five of her works have been finalists for the Pulitzer Prize, and she's long been rumored as a frontrunner to win the Nobel Prize for Literature. Through all of that celebrated career, she has taught creative writing. Oates, who is now 84 years old, started in the classroom right out of grad school. So by now, she has been teaching creative writing maybe longer than anyone else in the country. She's still teaching at Princeton, and also at NYU and Rutgers. It's trendy among education reformers to say that education hasn't changed much over time. But Joyce Carol Oates' own experience as a student and educator reminds us how much actually has changed, especially around who gets to teach and who gets to study at the nation's best colleges. Oates grew up on a farm in upstate New York and started school in a one-room schoolhouse with no plumbing. She was the first in her family to finish college. And actually the first in her family to finish high school. The material in her fiction is often dark. As a current Princeton student recently wrote in the student paper the Daily Princetonian, she is, quote, a master at finding horror in the ordinary. That's true in her most famous short story, where are you going, where have you been, about a girl who was kidnapped on a kind of typical sunny day. Joyce Carol Oates has said of her approach to fiction, if you can face the darkest elements of oneself and the things that are secret, you have such a feeling of power. All these years after taking her class, I still remember her attentiveness to the details of the student works that we critiqued. Now that I'm a reporter covering education, I was excited to ask her about her philosophy of teaching and how it's informed her work. So I connected with Joyce Carol Oates by Zoom for an interview about her teaching career. Her answers surprised me, and at times she seemed to struggle to put into words why she has kept teaching all these years. At one point in our conversation, she compared her approach in the classroom to boxing, a sport that she loves and she devoted a whole book to called On Boxing.
1: I think probably older boxers who are retired boxers probably enjoy watching tapes and videos of the great boxing matches, you know, and seeing how, you know, what Muhammad Ali did here and what Joe Fraser did and what Sugar Ray Robinson did. I mean, it's sort of just admiring the technique. That's definitely a part of what I'd like to do as a teacher. I can spend an hour on a really short story by Hemingway and we just all discuss it.
0: Joyce Carol Oates ended up having a huge influence on me, but not because I was able to absorb her wisdom and follow in her footsteps. As you'll hear, my experience with creative writing raises questions about how to evaluate creative work by students and how to best steer students to their strengths. There have been students in her classes who she encouraged in a literary career. One famous example is Jonathan Safran Foer. One day before class, she reportedly told him, I'm a fan of your writing, a moment he describes as life-altering. He went on to pen the best-selling novel, Everything is Illuminated, which started actually as a senior thesis project at Princeton. I started my conversation with Joyce Carol Oates by asking, what was her first teaching job?
1: And how did she get into teaching? I think I was about 22 years old, and my first position was as an instructor. In the English department at the University of Detroit, so that was a long time ago, and I was mar- I was newly married. My husband was teaching at Wayne State University. We were living in um, in the city of Detroit. We were living right around Eight Mile Road, so it was like the uh, it was like at the very outside sort of outskirts of Detroit before you crossed over into a suburb called Ferndale. So we were in Detroit, but we weren't—we weren't really in the inner city. And I was about two miles away from the University of Detroit. So I had never taught before. I was given a position as an instructor by a very wonderful chair of an English department at, at University of Detroit, who had interviewed me, and he just liked my presentation of myself, I guess, and, and he was impressed with that I was a writer. Yeah. And so I, I had no teaching experience at all. I was just hired. Today, it's very difficult to get good jobs teaching. Right. You know, but but in the 1960s, there were many more openings, I think. So I was very excited. I was given, I think, four courses in composition which is a staggering amount of teaching. Yeah. And I just got thrown in it. So sort of like jumping in a, jumping in a river and swimming.
0: So you are teaching undergraduates, the basics of composition.
1: Undergraduates. Yes. And then I would think I probably had two courses in composition and maybe two in introduction to literature. Okay. Let me, introduction to English literature. So we had an anthology. So I walked into class and I was, Only about 22 at the time. So I was actually the same age as some of the students at Detroit. I was teaching a night class and there were people older than I was. There were like 30 people in the room. And I just thought, well, I was a little intimidated. I had never taught before. So I just sort of plunged into it and I really loved it. I think as soon as I walked in the room, I just felt, I feel at home. Huh. And though yeah. I had, I had been worried and anxious about it for weeks, and my husband was out in the hall. He he walked, he brought me to the university, and he was sort of out in the hall. He walked me to the room, and then I just went in. I remember how, how strange that was because I felt that I was really very much at home, and I just felt very relaxed. And I've always felt that way, sort of like I really love being in that that situation. I feel I identify with the students more than I identify with myself. I sort of feel we're all in this kind of uh, consciousness together. So that was my beginning. That was a long time ago.
0: It's interesting that you described it as like you just feel like a, a kinship with the students, it sounds like.
1: Yes, I really it was surprising. I didn't I think that if you overthink a situation that's gives rise to anxiety. Then when I just walked in the room it's like a completely different experience where you're suddenly looking at actual people and you're talking to specific people rather than imagining some abstract audience, you know, that doesn't even exist.
0: In in your writing you've talked about your own um, childhood in, in in your memoirs, and, and I wonder. It sounds like you started in a one room schoolhouse as a student, as a and it. The way you describe it, it sounds like another time. I mean, it, it was this upstate New York and the same one room schoolhouse where your own mother had attended, if I if I remember correctly. Was there a teacher from, whether it be early on or or, um or later that that really influenced you or or felt like that you felt like really kind of set you the standard for you as a teacher?
1: Oh, yes. I had wonderful teachers later on, not in the one room schoolhouse, but later on when I was in high school in Williamsville. Yes. I had excellent teachers. They were very, very good. I mean, really a number like four or five teachers that I liked a lot. Is there any one that yes, stood out? No, the one room schoolhouse was a feature of rural life in America.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Because in a in the country, you know, way out in the country, there are not enough students to have like a big high school. You know, in suburbs, you have big high schools because the population is dense. But out in the country, you know, there can be farms that are on 10, 12, 30 acres. So they're far apart from one another. So in the one-room schoolhouse... For some miles in the concentric circle, we only had about, oh, maybe 25 students.
0: Despite being many age- uh, grades, right? Yeah. First, yeah.
1: first grade to eighth grade. Mm. And then, surprisingly enough, most kids just quit. They didn't go beyond eighth grade. So that was kind of the end. There were many farm boys, because this was an area of farms, And the farm boys were not what you'd call book lovers. They were not exactly scholars. They went to school because that was mandated by the New York state law, but they usually dropped out when they were about 16. So it was a different world. And not to go into a great deal of my history, kind of collapsing and and abbreviating my history, when I was... Well, oh, I should say I was pretty much tormented by these older kids. I mean, younger younger students were bullied and tormented by the older ones. That was just the way it always was, hmm. I think, in any of these one-room schoolhouses. When you have 16- or 17-year-old boys who don't want to be there at all, they just want to be working you know, and earning a living, thrown together with young children and girls, you will get a lot of tormenting and and bullying. So I had a lot of that. But then later on, like years later, after fifth grade, there was some change in the township. And then from that point onward, we were bused into a town, a small city named Lockport, Quite, uh, today, it has only about 29,000 people. It's not a large city. But we went to real schools there. So I went to sixth grade in a real school.
0: <laughs> with, with plumbing, with indoor plumbing. Yeah.
1: And then seventh, eighth, and ninth grade, I was a, a middle school. I mean, with a number of teachers. I didn't have just one teacher. I had a number of teachers for each subject. Then things got changed again, and I was bused to Williamsville, an affluent suburb of Buffalo. So I went from one-room schoolhouse to small city of Lockport to a really affluent suburb where all the teachers were excellent and my classmates went to good universities. In Lockport, probably almost nobody went to college and the one-room schoolhouse, people didn't even graduate from high school. So kind of in a vertiginous way, I kind of was fast forwarded through the 20th century from like a pioneer situation to small city and then to an affluent suburb and then to a good university which is Syracuse I had a scholarship and then to Madison Wisconsin eventually to Princeton University so it's like only in America could you go from one room schoolhouse to Princeton University it's quite a quite remarkable really
0: it's, it is like a fast forward through time and an American kind of evolution of, of schooling. Wow. And and the, and the country. In your memoir, The Lost Landscape, you also mentioned some, I think it sounds like some frustrating experience you had with professors in grad school at Wisconsin-Madison. Uh, um, but it might have been, some of it was, I guess, the study of, of kind of literature, it sounded like, or sort of... Um, you know critical studies of literature instead of creative writing, but is there a kind of college teaching that you kind of react against in your own teaching, if you will?
1: Well, when I went to the University of Wisconsin at Madison, that was a long time ago, and there were many professors there from harvard uh-huh. they, they they had the degrees from Harvard, but they were teaching in the Midwest. I think they brought from Harvard and the Ivy League a certain way a certain way of pedagogy which okay. was, was not, uh, not as youthful and exciting uh, professors as I had at as an undergraduate at Syracuse. So it's like an older generation was waiting for me at Madison, whereas I had a younger generation of, of uh, mostly men. They loved literature. They were very vital. They were teaching people like Samuel Beckett at the time, mm-hmm. newly translated into English at that time. And um, so I sort of went back in time and encountered professors who were more interested in scholarship and literary history. So for instance, a lecture by Merritt Hughes, who's a Renaissance scholar, would mostly be about like sources for Shakespearean plays and Hollishan's Chronicles and like the Fairy Queen, sort of talking about the background Whereas at Syracuse, they were new critics and they were looking at the texts and really, you know, really looking at the language, the passages and poems and prose. So I had really good undergraduate education. But then when I went to Madison, it was more stuffy, like more old fashioned, literally old fashioned. However, I did read a lot at Wisconsin and I read all the classics in uh, English literature. And I had a couple of courses in American literature. So I was reading. It's just that the scholarship, the focus on that kind of teaching and lecturing is no longer um, it's no longer with us. I don't think anybody does that today, especially not in English.
0: I see. I see. And so it really just wasn't. It's So in a way, the, the direction and the order in which you had that, you sort of saw what you were missing.
1: Yeah. Well, when I was being examined for my master's degree, it was so evident. The people who were examining me like one professor or young professor he just wanted to talk about the the, the history of the editions of Whitman's Leaves of Grass like when was it published and when was this published and you know I was sort of stymied because I had always been looking at poetry as poetry I wasn't really that interested you know in the scholarship and the history it seemed like the people who taught that way didn't really know how to read a, a work of fiction or poetry I mean they didn't understand that writing is language it's beautiful language and there may be a story there may be a narrative you know they were sort of looking at all the peripheral material like who influenced who and where did this person, where was he born, and so forth. And it was like literary history that they they cared about the history. And my generation cared about the actual writing. So that was one of the one of the areas of conflict. But I'm glad I didn't. If I had gotten a PhD in English, I might just have been an English professor. And I would much rather have been a writer. So it was really a good it was a good thing that I ran into that kind of wall.
0: You've published so many novels, I think 58, probably more under different names in this. um, And some you're kind of famed for your productivity and output. And yet in most of your career, you've, you've continued to teach um, and take time out of your writing to sit in rooms with undergrads and work, work through their writing and, and work with aspiring writers. I guess, I guess I have a, a sort of simple one-word question, which is kind of why, of why teaching?
1: Well, as I said, I like I, I like teaching. I, I really love the situation of being in a room talking about books and talking about student writing. I, I find it just very interesting. I have graduate students at NYU. I teach in the graduate writing program at NYU. And then I teach at undergraduates at Princeton, and I direct senior theses at Princeton. I also teach at Rutgers. I'm I'm like a visiting professor there for a couple of years. And there I I have older students who are actually instructors at the university at Rutgers. I have three in my class who are themselves teaching writing. Then I have the rest of them, I think the seven of them are undergraduates, So it's a really wide, you know, really wide spectrum of people who are as young as 18 who are young undergraduates to people who are older who may be almost, you know, 40, 45, who in some cases they've already published books. So I have this wide range of people. So I engage with all these people. I just find it very interesting.
0: I guess I – because obviously – You know, time. You have it. You're at a point where I'm sure, like you know, you don't need to teach as far as the, um. You know, you could spend the time teaching. It's like the writing. So I guess, it it is interesting. But I guess I does it. Um. Yeah, I I guess could you say more about what what kind of you get from from the teaching, that that keeps you coming back?
1: You know, it's it's sort of hard to be interviewed about something that basically I've been teaching most of my adult life so yeah. obviously to ask me if I like it seems a little <laughs> you know redundant and then if there's some reason, I've tried to say that I enjoy it you know so I'm not sure how many times I can sort of say the same thing but <laughs> people say might say, well, why are you writing or why are you doing a podcast or an interview like there's some basic question that you answer kind of quickly. But if you're asking it repeatedly, you can't really expand upon it. So
0: mm.
1: um when I first started teaching, I probably didn't want an income. You know, it wasn't much of an income, but my husband was teaching, so I wanted to do something also I wanted I've always wanted to work. I've always been working in the sense of getting a paycheck, you know maybe that's. Sure background. I'm from a working class background. So I'm not from a background where people had trust funds and just, you know, had nothing to do at all. So I associate working and being involved with life in a a very positive way. When I go to New York, I take the New Jersey transit train to New York and I walk down from Penn Station to West 10th Street. So I really look forward to that. That's once a week. Mm. I mean, somebody say, well, why do you want to do that? It's cold out and it's, it's windy. Well, I just enjoy it, you know, and then I meet somebody afterward, maybe and have dinner with my editor or Amy Tan, who's a writer who lives in New York part of the time. She's a friend. So, I mean, basically it's a whole way of life. Sometimes people say, well, why did you? or did you not have children? You know, like people who have children love them and ask why did you have children or why didn't you have children? It's kind of questions hard to answer.
0: I respect that. I I hear you. Um, It is interesting. I mean, it's sort of the, that is the life, you know, it seems like it's all connected. I'm trying to feel like one of the things that, um, that I'm curious about is how, um, your teaching has influenced your writing because you know you are you're teaching the thing that you are um, renowned at at doing yourself and I wonder what the interplay for you is as far as the um, if there is you know as you see it between the students you work with and the and your own writing.
1: I'm not sure how to answer that. I assign my students usually short stories from an anthology that I that I like, like a story by Hemingway or James Joyce or Faulkner or Alice Munro, <laughs> you know, sort of looking at, at stories that I think are exemplary. And I enjoy talking about them with the students. It's not that I have literary theories that I want to launch, you know, or, or analyze. It's just, it's just sort of like have conversation about the craftsmanship. The kind of technique and choices that a writer makes, like what's the title? What's the first paragraph? How does it end? What's the structure? I really enjoy talking about that. Um, I don't know why. (laughs) I think probably older boxers who are retired boxers probably enjoy watching tapes and videos of the great boxing matches, you know, and seeing how, you know, what Mohammed Ali did here and what Joe Fraser did and what, Sugar Ray Robinson did. I mean, it's sort of just admiring the technique. That's definitely a part of what I'd like to do as a teacher. I can spend an hour on a really short story by Hemingway and we just all discuss it.
0: Yeah. I remember I took um, a class with you when I was, it was, I realize now about 30 years ago, I have vivid, vivid memories of sitting, you know, in a small seminar with you and in this like sunlit room, you know, with just a few of us circled around, and and talking about our work, um, and I, there was one. There's it's funny because I feel like it's a it's a it's a moment that I still remember, but I feel like it it feels like there were probably many moments like this, um, where a classmate had a story he brought in, and we talked, we were you know kind of workshopping it or, or commenting on it, and I think there was a scene in which like the main character, like. Um, You know, it was the people were writing all kinds of things, but one of the 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 character drowned a cat in a fish tank, I think. And I remember it was it was actually I think it was even kind of a shocking scene. But you were very interested in kind of the details and and fleshing out the details of the the scene and and wondering whether the cat would sink or float because there was something that I feel like maybe wasn't you saw it as like I don't know it was it was really interesting that you were sort of looking for the detail and, and making sure this very emotional moment also had the research behind it and this kind of care of like living in this scene that really stuck with me that, that your comments about it, just like that, you know, there were so many things there, but I remember you were really um, pushing the student to, to think harder about like whether that scene was described as, as crisply and accurately as it could be. And, and, Um, I don't know. I feel like that was, like I said, that was probably one of many, but I remember that moment in these. So I guess, did you see your role as like helping the the students kind of like you mentioned with the the, the works, the famous works you're teaching or the, you know, the, that you're looking at the, the clips of these famous moments and going back over the, the, the footage and the like, the boxing metaphor, I really like. But in those, what was your, what is your strategy, if you will, or philosophy in like helping, guiding writers, showing you their their work when they're really you know new at it. Well,
1: my philosophy, but well, I don't know exactly how to answer that. Uh, like an editor. I mean, we take up a we take up a work, thirty pages or less usually in each workshop and really examine it as if we were editors let's say at the new yorker so mm-hmm. it's a, it's a story that we are going to publish in the magazine it's been we we're committed to publishing it but we want to make it better like how can this short story be even better so that's how i look at the text mm-hmm. i don't talk about a philosophy of life or of writing not usually in the workshop this is more specifically about the craft of fiction, I think talking very in very general abstract terms about anything is not so helpful. You know, people who are writers have to have an actual manuscript. You can't just say, you know, I want to be a writer and I have all these themes. You have to actually have a literal work that you're working on to show people. So we focus on the specific texts.
0: Sure, I like that. So the 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 idea of editing the work in front of you and making it as strong as it can be.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I have some students always in every workshop who are just brilliantly uh, born to be editors. They they get it. They know how to help one another. They know how to make suggestions. Some people are are paralyzed after they do a first draft and they can't seem to revise or rethink it. It sort of comes out that way and it's sort of stuck. But other people are able to see that the text is fluid. You should be able to rewrite it. You could throw the whole thing out and rewrite the whole thing and make it better. And that's what workshops are for, for people who are able to revise.
0: It sounds like you and your own work have written many novels that you've thrown out or or short stories rather like or works that you've done
1: this with well i don't usually throw things out but i work on them to yeah. make it better yeah you can always take a text if it has a structure and closure and if there's some reason for it to exist you can almost always you know raise that up technically to a level of language that that might be publishable so I find, it, I find it really exciting. I mean, maybe it's like playing chess with lots of people. You know, you just play chess because you like it, you know. Mm-hmm. Like a chess grandmaster might play chess with a really brilliant 12-year-old and come close to losing, you know, like the experience is just somehow pleasant in itself. When When students give me texts that are really worthwhile and interesting, I feel kind of excitement, and I want to help them make it better. Sometimes I say, Well, you need a new opening. This is not the best opening. How about this? You know at like page three, maybe that's your that's the beginning. So it's sort of like being an editor or a trainer or a coach, just kind of helping people take their material that exists and their goodwill and industry and kind of applying it and showing them how to make it, make it more efficient.
0: In the, all the time you've taught, are the students different now than they, they were back when you were starting to teach creative writing?
1: Well, there's a certain sort of writer who is self-selected. So at Princeton, when you were my student, everybody in the class selected to take the course So we're never teaching students who are fulfilling a requirement. You know, we never have any students in our classes who don't want to be there. There's a certain kind of student who's self-selected, and a certain kind of writer, literary person doesn't really change over the decades. This is probably the same person who was around, you know, in 1890. Sure, I (laughs) see. One of the Bronte sisters shows up in your class. She's going to have a lot in common with Jane Austen or Emily Dickinson, you know, or some or Laurie Moore. I mean, it's sort of a writerly type. And no, that that hasn't changed at all. But what has changed noticeably is that we have now ethnic American uh, young people who are first, second or third generation of immigrants. Many, many, many more of them and persons of color and persons who are the first people in their family to go to college. We have a lot. We have them. They are often very brilliant because they have scholarships. I didn't have those students at all when I was teaching at Detroit. It was like all white, all white. mostly catholic students so the a major change is just the literally the complexion of the students but within that cohort the personalities haven't changed that much if i have a young woman from india not not indian american literally from india who's working with me as a her senior thesis she has much more in common with a Caucasian girl, you know, from 1967, because they're both interested in books and writing. And this young woman from India is very interested in the work of Sylvia Plath. So she's, you know, Plath is an American writer. So as I say, there's a certain kind of literary type that doesn't change much over the decades.
0: Um, There's, there's one thing that, um, that I remember too, with, with um the class that i took with you there was a uh, a a a sort of like a time where we would come and get to talk to you in your office about a story i believe I, it was either required or i went to your office hour. and i do remember um for you like for me anyway i was i feel like i was um at that time really struggling in the creative writing program try you know i really wanted to be uh, i think a, i mean i a, a minor in creative writing, but it was, but I was also doing a lot of other things as a lot of undergraduates do. And I remember I was, a, I was spending a lot of time at the Daily Princetonian and you, um, I went in to see you about a story I'd written that, um, I really don't think was, was, you know, it was, it was not the greatest story I will confess. In fact, I was trying to find it cause it's like on some computer I still have, but I couldn't find it. But the, um, but I remember you had the daily Princetonian on your desk and you had seen a story that I was right. And I had written or feature uh, in the, in the prints. And you said, I, that you noticed that, that I had written and you said, you know, this is something, you know, basically it was, so sort of like, you should really focus on this right now. You, this, you know, over the the creative writing. And I, I took it as a, I I don't know. I, I, it was interesting because it was unexpected. And I was, I think it did almost help me see this kind of, um, something that I, I wasn't ready to admit to myself because I had this idea that I really wanted to be this writer, but I was struggling in the actual class of writing and production of, of short stories. And I don't know, I just, I, um, there's something that I, I almost like, I don't really know why I'm sharing the story other than it's like, it it was an interesting moment. I really appreciate that you had see, noticed that writing in the, par- in the prints in a way. Um, because I think it, it led me to think, um, think differently about something as I figured out like what, what to do. Um,
1: Well, I think people who are real, who are genuine writers and artists who don't necessarily choose to be, you know, like it's a predilection that people have. Maybe it's, it's pretty much unconscious. Mm. So if, if one is just as happy writing journalism or something else, that doesn't have to be dragged up from your unconscious, you know, you might as well do that because it's such a difficult field to be any kind of original artist. Uh, One could, you know, look upon the psychological, emotional turmoil that many people have. Is it really worth it? You know, when I look around at my students, especially my students who are in their twenties or thirties and they're working on novels, I don't necessarily tell them this, but I think to myself, oh, I wonder if the expenditure of energy and spirit this person has to put in that novel to make it even ordinary, you know, maybe to get it published, is that going to be worth it for them? Sometimes writers have great ideas, but to execute an ambitious novel, is it requires so much effort. You know, you can have a bunch of lumber in your backyard and you can have a great idea for a house. And you can talk about your great idea and show your plans. But when it comes to actually building that house, that's going to take time. And your youth is going to, you know, you put your youth and your energy into it. And sometimes it's probably not going to work, you know, but we who teach creative writing don't, we don't usually say anything like that. We try to, I try to steer my students towards their strengths. Some people can write short stories. uh, Some people can do something else like memoir. I try to tell them to work on that because they're not going to have a whole lot of youthful energy to spend like you know five years on a novel that might not then get published. It's it's like playing um, a risky gambling game of some kind. Hmm. And I can look at, I can read five pages of a student's work and sort of see this person is probably going to really be a writer and will be published. And so that happens all the time. Then there are other people who some sort of don't have a clue you know that they they may want to be a writer, but they don't really know that writing's about language. Hmm. They, they don't know what it's about. But that's another kind of subject. I mean, I've written a lot about boxing, but say one out of one out of one million young would be boxers comes into a gym in Catskill, 12 years old. That's, that was young Mike Tyson. Now, Custom Model, who was a trainer, he worked with many boxers, he saw this kid come in, 12 years old, saw him in the ring, very clumsy. He knew, he actually knew when he called somebody, he said, I've seen the next heavyweight champion of the world. In other words, there are some people who are have so much obvious talent that they just have to get trained and just have to do it. But that's like one in a million because most people who try to be boxers or they try to be writers, they just are not really going to, to be able to do it because they will give up after a while they'll be discouraged it's too hard and you know to have an idea is one thing but to execute it is another and then if they do get a story published they have to write another story you know like and if one novel one book published okay that's the beginning then the second one is really hard so it's It's like building this cathedral with your hands, with some sort of brick and mortar. It's actually a lot of work. And if you're not motivated in some almost crazy way, (laughs) most writers would say, well, I'm sort of crazy. Like, why am I doing this? But you'll see that anybody who does anything, whether it's athletics or art or music, uh, there's something obsessive about the person. That's all I can say. Probably to be a real artist, you have to be totally committed to a point of obsession. That doesn't mean you can't have a career. You could have a career writing something. You know, it doesn't have to be, not everybody has to be Toni Morrison or William Faulkner. You know, there are other levels of of achievement.
0: Yeah, I guess for you, do you have a sense of like, how did you know that you I mean, as that that you could get through all this for yourself. I mean, you've you've become this heavyweight <laughs> champion of the world in in your field in writing. Oh,
1: I never thought of myself as a writer. To me, each project or each story is independent of the others. and each project is very interesting and fascinating to me. So it's a little bit maybe maybe it's the way mathematicians feel. they have a pro a problem they're working on they're totally focused on the one problem Mm. and they don't care. They don't care, have any knowledge of what they're going to be doing in 15 years or what they did last year, like focusing on the work. So I've always been interested in like, what's the next story. And there's always overlap. I always have, I'm working on a novel now, but I have two novel outlines and, and work on other novels too. So when I'm done with this, I'll go to one of the others, but There's always a kind of overlap. I'm fascinated by the next chapter I'm writing. So I have, this is a chapter of a novel. So I've been working at this chapter for several days. So I finished it last night. So I will reread it and then I'll plan the next chapter. To me, that's what I'm focusing on. I've always been like that and I never have thought. My first book was published when I was quite young I never really knew that I have another novel, another book, and then when I published that I didn't really know I have another one published. It's sort of been like one step after another. I would literally have been incredulous if somebody said, well one day you have written you know a hundred books I would say that's that's not possible uh, maybe it's like a woman who who prepares ten thousand meals in her lifetime she never thinks about all the meals she's going to pub- prepare. She sort of thinks, what am I going to make for tonight? You know, and focuses on that preparation, but she's not thinking about next week.
0: One last question. Do you have any tips for those teaching writing, you know, that from all your years doing it?
1: Well, teaching writing, I think just encouraging young writers, seeing what they're doing, giving them ideas, uh, assigning really good texts and exemplary stories for them to read and discussing them. For instance, at Rutgers last week, a young woman wrote a story that was like 15 pages long, with a lot of filler in the middle. And mm-hmm. she said, she didn't really know how to write a story. And she, I thought she had a really good beginning and the ending was fairly good. The middle was kind of meaningless. And so I sent to her by email some examples of short fictions, like one or two pages long what we call flash fictions. And I said, your story basically could be a really wonderful three-page story or two-page story. You just have to put it together with a new structure. And she wrote back and she said, thank you. That's exactly that's exactly what I needed to be told because I know it's all very meandering and I didn't know what else to do. So I was suggesting that she read two two short, 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 short stories, you know and to give her a sense of structure. So that's the sort of thing that I think teachers can do. We can suggest that students read models of a craft, and then that that can help them with their stories. So thank you, Jeff. It's been nice. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.
0: This has been the EdSearch Podcast. Every week we bring you stories and conversations meant to spark your curiosity about learning. We hope you will follow the EdSearch Podcast wherever you listen, And sign up for our weekly podcast newsletter at edsurge.com. Just go to the top and click on Newsletter. In that newsletter, we dive deeper into the topics that we explore. This episode was written and produced by me, Jeff Young. And you can find me on Twitter at jryoung or on the web at jeffyoung.net. Music this episode by Rowan Jane. We'll be back next week with more
1: on the future of learning. Thanks for listening.